Good evening, fellow lover of the strange and unusual. I'm Jessica Hobbs, author of the story you are about to enjoy. If you've found your way here, you, like me, might find yourself pondering the what-ifs that fuel our deepest fears. What if there really is a monster in the forest? What if the worst aspects of ourselves lead us to our painful demise? What if our mind someday begins to betray us? These thoughts pulse through my collection of short stories, The Witch and Other Tales of the American Gothic, an assemblage of strange occurrences across the complicated patchwork of 19th century America. On this episode, we head into the woods of Maine in the midst of the War of 1812, unlocking a tale of isolation, betrayal, love, and vengeance in The Witch. Portland, Maine, 1814. The stone cottage was small, but filled with warmth and everything else the witch could need. A cot, a rocking chair, a fireplace, an iron skillet for cooking, a lush garden full of roses, vegetables, and dozens of herbs, and various animal pelts hanging on the walls, waiting to be sewn into blankets and wool dresses for the long, harsh New England winters. But though the witch had become quite skilled at gardening and trapping in order to survive alone in the woods of Maine, her life in exile was not one of her choosing. It was a weight the witch carried with her every day. As a child, the witch had one true friend by the name of Mary Grace, and many solitary hours in the woods were consumed by thoughts of her and the happier times they had spent together, playing near the ocean, picking flowers in her mother's garden, or even completing household chores. The two had longed to be sisters through the entirety of their childhood, and nearly got their wish at the ages of fifteen, when the witch's mother passed away after years of agonizing illness. Her grieving father, a fisherman by trade, set sail shortly after, leaving his only daughter in the care of Mary Grace's parents. He never returned. Though the family had been kind to her, the burden her presence had placed upon them was obvious. Thus, the witch began to accept the inevitability of marriage. And that is where our story begins. The witch was not known as such when she was young. Before the tragedy, she was a normal girl of a somewhat shy disposition, with strawberry hair that hung in waves around her face, and eyes that matched the gray of the early New England mornings. Mary Grace was a beautiful child, and the only child in the village not entirely of English descent. Mary Grace's father had been a traitor for many years, and during one particularly fruitful exhibition, had met and fallen madly in love with a woman from Siam. It was said that the young man was so taken with her, he had renegotiated the terms of his trade heavily in favor of the local merchant, 
forfeiting a sizable amount of money in order to impress her father. Once her family gave their blessing, the two were married in Siam before embarking upon their journey back to Portland. The love story shared between Mary Grace's parents was more exciting than anything she had ever read in a book or heard in a church sermon. Someday, she believed, her own father would bring her with him on one of his excursions at sea. Perhaps they would sail so far from home they could discover an exciting new land, where she would meet a nice young man who would introduce her to customs, languages, and delicacies she could not yet imagine. The people of the town didn't think much about her at all, really, until the news of her mother's illness. Even before she had become bedridden, mother had stopped attending church, and quiet murmurs began to spread around town that she had given up on God, her declining health providing evidence of God's anger toward her for such blasphemy. On one occasion, the family had awoken to a group of men pounding on the front door. Before mother ushered her back to bed, she could hear the accusations being thrown at father, that he had allowed Satan to enter his home, abandoning his duty as the man of the house to protect his family, and must repent for his misdeeds before evil could be allowed to infect the entire town. The death of her mother and disappearance of her father caused the rumors to become much more vicious. Though some of the neighbors cast judgment upon Mary Grace's parents for accepting her, most agreed that the child being raised by a God-fearing family was best for her and for the spiritual health of the town. A few of them looked upon the girl with pity once she became an orphan, but motherless children were hardly rare, as the villagers struggled through the brutal winters, and the spring would often bring as many funerals as it did flowers. It was for this reason that hasty marriages were common as well, as newly widowed parents would look to find a new partner to care for their grieving children. In the summer of 1809, John Mills, the town's most prominent farmer, was looking to do just that. With two daughters at home, both under the age of five, Mr. Mills needed a wife capable of managing the home and willing to do the hard work in the fields until their future sons were old enough to pull their weight. Mary Grace had a gentle temperament. She was the kind of girl better suited to living in town and spending her time at church or crafting candles by the fire. The young orphan, by contrast, was accustomed to difficult work both inside and out of the home. She had spent many summers on the shore gathering clams with her father, and once her mother fell ill, the caretaking had largely fallen to her. She was no stranger to soiled sheets, night terrors, last rites read by dying candlelight, or the raspy gasps of imminent death. John Mills figured that a young woman with such experiences could easily handle two small children and a few farm animals. Mr. Mills had no problem making the arrangements with Mary Grace's father, who viewed the proposal as a divine stroke of luck for the daughter of a mere fisherman. But unbeknownst to both men, the girls had been keeping a secret. His name was Michael James, and while the rest of the town seemed not to notice the way he looked at her, Mary Grace could read her best friend like no other. She saw them glance at each other across the pews in church, and knew exactly why her friend had recently acquired an interest in cooking fish for dinner every night of the week. Michael worked as a fisherman down at the docks. And because Mary Grace loved her friend as she would love a sister, both girls were perhaps equally upset by the news her father broke 
at the supper table that fateful evening. Mary Grace will help you pack your clothes, he instructed. The wedding will take place this Sunday after the services, and Mr. Mills will take you back to the farm. It was such a simple command, a decision that would forever change her life, delivered as though the family had been discussing what to eat for breakfast the next day. Her heart sank, but alas, she knew better than to refuse. The service was simple. The bride carried a bouquet of violets. It wasn't until the reverend pronounced them man and wife that she looked at his face and into his eyes. He was nearly twice her age, still handsome, though farm life had aged him beyond his years. His hands were rough and calloused and his shoulders seemed to be in a permanent state of tension due to years of leaning over, tending the earth, and milking the cows. John shook hands with Mary Grace's father. Mary Grace's mother held the bride close, wishing her a lifetime of happiness. As for Mary Grace herself, she quietly mourned the loss of her adopted sister, but said nothing. The two hugged each other tight, and the bride was startled to feel a note slipped into one hand a second before John reached for the other. As she climbed onto the wagon and sat beside her husband, she saw him. Michael, across the road, gazing at her in a manner so subtle no one nearby could have seen the hurt in his eyes. No one, at least, but the young bride herself. Flora, age four, and Lydia, age three, were well-behaved and curious to meet their stepmother. To her relief, they were happy to see their father, who smiled wide and scooped them up into his arms as soon as he opened the door to the farmhouse. She roasted a chicken for supper, and though she did not have the time to bake a proper loaf of bread, she vowed to do so the following day. The family ate together in relative silence, save for the occasional giggle as one of the children attempted to tickle the other. This was her life now, and there was nothing to be done but accept it. But her heart ached. The farm was far from town and from the only family she had left. John would leave her alone often because of the endless work to be done in the fields. And Michael. The thought of losing him hurt most of all. He was young, not yet a man of established means like John, and would therefore not be seen as a suitable husband. But she did not care. Other than Mary Grace, Michael was the first person to see her beyond her responsibilities. He had first been a friend to her when her mother was ill, often asking not of her mother's condition, but of her own well-being. He inquired about her interests and, upon discovering her love of mulberries, went out of his way to collect some from a neighbor's property any day he suspected she might come to see him at the market. Perhaps John was a good man, but this marriage was about duty and sacrifice. It had nothing to do with love. Night fell. While John tucked the children into their beds, she crept into the bedroom and reached for the note Mary Grace had given her at the church. Dearest, my heart breaks to know I could not offer you the life you have been promised by Mr. Mills. I have taken leave of my work at the docks and will set sail tomorrow morning on a fishing expedition. I would give anything to bring you with me, to sail across the waves all through the day and lay together under the bright stars at night. I could not leave without declaring to you, my darling, my love for you and my regret for failing to become your husband. I wish you happiness at your new home and hope our paths cross again in another life. With love, Michael. The click of the door opening startled her and she quickly stuffed the note under the mattress just as John entered the room. 
Without looking at her face, he tugged at the laces of her nightgown, slipping it down past her shoulders. She shuddered as a draft stung her bare skin. John put his strong hands on her arms, first seeming to warm her, then gently pushed her back onto the bed. She looked at the ceiling and tried to relax. He held her for just a minute, then kissed her on the forehead. She closed her eyes. John slept soundly beside her, but she was wide awake, consumed by the thought of Michael setting sail, perhaps, as had been the case with her father, never to return. The unrelenting thoughts finally inspired her to creep quietly out of bed and hastily retrieve her shoes. The amber sunlight had just begun to kiss the water as she rode up on John's horse. The ship was busy with men loading crates and barrels, preparing for weeks at sea. He was there, among them, moments away from closing up the ship and setting sail. Michael! She shouted, loud enough to get the attention of half a dozen sailors. He ran to her with a look of grave concern. She dismounted the horse and met his embrace. What are you thinking? Are you mad? Don't go. Don't leave me. It is too late to abandon my position. I cannot stay. I will come with you then. It is too dangerous. Surely I cannot bring a married woman, or any woman, on an expedition such as this. But your letter. I stated the truth of how I feel, not the truth of what is possible. Let us run away then. Any port in the colonies is in constant want of fishermen. We can be together anywhere we please. I love you, Michael. Michael looked at her face, her skin red from the cold morning air, her eyes shining in the soft light of the sunrise, and frowned. It is too late. You have taken your vows, and I cannot be the man who breaks the heart of an already grieving family. It would be a sin. She shook her head. It cannot be too late. No one in our new village would ever need to know. God will know, and eventually so will your husband. He wrapped his arms around her and kissed her on the head. I must be going. John Mills is a noble man, and I have no doubt that you will be a wonderful wife to him. And with that, he turned away from her and rushed toward the ship. She watched from the hillside as the ship became smaller though her longing for him seemed to grow as deep as the ocean itself. The sun was high and the sky blue when she returned to the farm. She would have to tell John she panicked at the thought of moving away from her best friend and found herself going back for a proper goodbye. Fear gripped her entire body as she wondered if he would believe her story, and if he didn't, what he would say or do to her as punishment. But her only other choice would be to run, and with no money, no food and nowhere to go, that wasn't a choice at all. A lump crawled into her throat as she approached the farm. Something was wrong. Strange horses surrounded the front porch and a small crowd of neighbors had gathered around a wagon. An older woman sat on the porch with Flora and Lydia in her arms, both of them sobbing uncontrollably. 
The icy glares they sent to her confirmed her worst fear. Lying in the back of the wagon, wrapped in a sheet from her own marital bed, lay the body of John Mills. Having found no indications of violence on his body, the town council concluded that John must have been murdered through acts of witchcraft. Her family's fate had long ago aroused suspicion from the rest of the town, and now the adulterous note from Michael found in the bedroom, coupled with her escape and subsequent return to the scene of the crime, proof in their eyes of a guilty conscience, led to a singular conclusion on the matter of who must have conspired with the devil to commit such an act of malice against him. The rumors were unbearably cruel. Some people in the town swore they had seen her plant poison hemlock in the garden she had so dutifully attended to at Mary Grace's home and brought it with her to the farm with the intention of killing not only her husband, but the children as well. Others insisted a mere kiss from a minion of Satan would suck the life from a man, and that John Mills had unknowingly sealed his own death warrant the moment he had married her. She would have hung if not for the persistence of Mary Grace's parents. Having given up on convincing the town of their adopted daughter's innocence, they instead pleaded with the council not to allow their town to meet the same fate Salem had a century before. Salem lived on in infamy for the disaster the panic of the witch trials had caused, which in the end had seen hundreds of innocents imprisoned and nineteen of them killed. No, they insisted, Portland must be better than this. The best way to protect the town from such catastrophe was to allow the accused to live in exile, alone, far from where she could ever harm another soul. Thus, the orphaned girl turned widow was banished from the town of Portland, and henceforth referred to only as the witch. years went by slowly. The witch made do with her solitary lifestyle, but the matter of forgiveness was something else entirely. She couldn't be bothered with that blissful, fleeting feeling of denial. She never allowed herself that moment upon waking, where one forgets their plight in the faintest hint of the dawn, only to remember and relive the horror over again seconds later. Nor could she wrap herself in the twisted comfort of shock, numbing her nerves to the outside world, her mind ill-equipped to comprehend its own misery. No, she could have none of that. Rather, she seethed in anger in every waking moment, anger that had spread through her entire body as the hateful rumors about her had spread through the town of Portland. When she toiled away, planting in the garden in the spring, she hated them. When she harvested the berries in the summer and the root vegetables in the autumn, she hated them. She made candles by the fire and hated them. She skinned rabbits, raccoons, and squirrels to sew clothing from their pelts and hated them. The townspeople feared her, but in need of an honest living, the witch resolved to swallow her rage when one might be occasionally desperate enough to make the two-hour journey to her cottage for help. The witch had cultivated a large herb garden and studied the various effects an herbal concoction could have on one's mind and body. It was a twisted way in which she had become what they expected her to be as it was common knowledge that the medicinal properties one could find in nature was something only a witch could fully understand. This was, in fact, how the witch had learned that Mary Grace had married a few years later. 
a handsome young blacksmith by the name of Alexander Roth had paid the witch a visit, asking for anything to lessen the pain of a lost pregnancy. Her heart broke for her estranged sister, but she felt an overwhelming sense of relief knowing Mary Grace had a husband who cared enough for her to make such a journey at the risk of damaging his own reputation. Neither he nor Mary Grace had returned since, and the witch spent many an hour wondering if they had managed to have another baby. The witch also made a modest living by allowing weary travelers to spend the night in her cottage. The home rested on a small hill and could be seen from the main road leading to Portland, and even though Portland was just two more hours away, many travelers riding into the night could not resist the call of a warm bed and a homemade stew, and figured whatever business needed to be accomplished in town would best be done after a good night's rest. The witch would provide just that. Sacrificing her own bed and sharing her own dinner, she would instead stay awake all night in her rocking chair by the fire, sewing or perhaps bundling dried herbs, with a knife at her waist, just in case. Five winters had passed since her banishment, and a sixth was forthcoming. It was a peaceful autumn morning when the witch ventured into the woods, as she did every morning, to retrieve any small animals that had found themselves trapped in a deep hole she had dug in the ground and lightly covered with twigs and leaves. The ground was frosty and the air was thick, signaling the imminent arrival of the first snow of the season. It was a disappointment to see that one trap had clearly been stepped in, but the creature had managed to escape. It happened from time to time. She reset the twigs and shook her head. It must have been a large one, a rabbit, perhaps, to have jumped out of a hole so deep and thus would have made a stew that could have lasted for days. She made her way to the carrot patch and found many of them gone. This was a bit stranger, as they had clearly not been dug from the dirt, but rather plucked. Surrounded by so much silence, the witch would occasionally find herself haunted by the feeling that someone, most likely a townsperson seeking retribution, could be watching her and the thought of it caused the ever-present sense of rage to force its way into her chest. A feeling of warmth collected in her fingertips as she pulled in a deep breath. She paused for a moment in the stillness of the woods, a space so intimately familiar to her she knew its every movement. A light breeze caused a few red leaves to fall to the ground. It was quiet, but something was different. Placing a hand on the knife at her belt, she spun around to the trees behind her. Who goes there? There was no answer. She stepped closer. I know you were hiding. Reveal yourself now and be done with it. The rustling continued, and a figure slowly emerged. It was a horse. She lowered her knife and stared at the creature, puzzled. The horse was in fine shape. It had clearly been fed and even had a rope hastily fashioned around its neck to resemble reins. She mounted the horse with the largest jump she could muster, an awkward one at that, given the size of the animal, grabbed it by the mane, and held the knife to its throat. Come out now, or I turn your horse into a meal large enough to last through winter. Finally, a man emerged from behind a large bush. My apologies, said a deep but quivering voice. I mean you no harm. I just needed a place to rest and something to eat. Please, do not hurt the animal. I need him. I have a long journey ahead. She took in the sight before her, 
He was young and healthy by all appearances, save for the pale skin that indicated he had not eaten much lately. Finally, she noticed his attire, a military uniform. You are a Navy man? Yes. You seem to be far from home, sailor. You do not know the half of it. Are you lost? In a manner of speaking, yes. She straightened up on the horse, indignant. Did you take an animal from a trap this morning? He took a few steps back and reached behind a tree, retrieving a large rabbit with a broken neck. Please, believe me. I do not wish to steal from you, but it has been two days since I last ate, and I am desperate for food. The witch was unsure of what to do with this man. She thought of all the uses she could have for the horse. Not to eat, that was a hollow threat she had posed to the stranger in the bushes. But with a horse, she could venture far into the woods to collect as many herbs and berries as she could find. She could plant potatoes and carrots anywhere she found the best soil, and carry loads of them back to her cottage. Yes, she needed the horse, and the man needed to find his ship. I propose a trade. I will take you where you need to go. And once you have arrived, I will return home with your horse. With respect, my lady, I do not believe that is a good idea. Alternatively, I can ride into town right at this moment and alert the authorities to your whereabouts. I'm certain they can reunite you with your men. It is not that simple. There's been a battle about two days north of here. Many of my men have been scattered throughout the region, and I fear it will take a great amount of effort to find and reunite those of us lucky enough to still be alive. He looked up at her with a tired resignation. I beg of you, just let me be on my way. You may have the rabbit, and we shall never see each other again. Perhaps it was because the witch knew the pain of a life removed from one's home, or perhaps it was simply because it had been months since she had set eyes on another human being. But whatever the reason, the witch observed his pitiful offering of a dead rabbit in exchange for his freedom, and decided the matter would be best discussed over a warm bowl of rabbit stew. He ate so quickly she worried he would choke. She took her time, partially to savor the fresh stew and the almost stale bread she had left over from the day before, but mostly to watch him. What is your name, sailor? He looked up with a smirk. Forgive me. In all the excitement, I have clearly forgotten all of my manners. Petty Officer Isaac H. Perry. And how did you come to be separated from your men, Officer Petty? He chuckled and cleared his throat. Perry. He politely corrected. She smiled and blushed a little. Pardon me. Officer Perry. The smile faded from his face as he prepared a response to her question. Are you aware of what's happening on the shores right now? The conflict with the British? She shook her head. The Redcoats have arrived again. We met them at the wharf near Hamden with a large number of men. But their reinforcements proved to be too much for us. The battle descended into chaos, and I... I eventually came to... alone in the woods. She glanced at the window and saw the color of the world had shifted to a dark gray as the clouds surrounded them. The first storm of the season was usually followed by sunnier days before the winter settled in to stay for a number of months. Perhaps tomorrow, even, the sun would be out and his risk of freezing on his journey through the woods would be substantially lower.
You may stay here tonight, if you wish. I could not impose on you. She held up her hand, uninterested in his polite objection that ultimately amounted to no more than an empty platitude. The woods here are dangerous. It is not wise to brave them in the snow. Thank you. You are a very generous woman. Generous was one of the few descriptors the witch had never heard directed toward her. He slept through most of the afternoon, which worried her a little. If he were to be up all night, she would need to be especially careful to stay up as well. Trust was something the witch had long since given up in finding with others. The snow began to fall just as the sun disappeared behind the ridge. The witch stepped outside wrapped in a fur blanket and drank tea made from birch and sage. She met the horse's gaze for a moment, then approached him, placing her fur blanket on his back and stroking him softly on the nose. He blinked at her. She suspected the horse was as grateful for a place to rest as was his master. Given Mr. Perry's ordeal in the war, she expected him to stir in his sleep, but exhaustion had clearly taken its toll. He was so still she crept up to him and watched carefully to ensure he was breathing. He finally roused himself from her bed just before supper, the smell of fresh bread and fried potatoes no doubt tempting him back from even the deepest slumber. He took in his surroundings and noted the snow on the windowsill. You were right. I should not be riding in this storm. The witch did not respond. She knew she had been right. Without a word, she handed him a plate of food, which he ate quickly despite his efforts to pace himself. You are too kind to me. I find myself in disbelief I could have stumbled upon someone so lovely during this godforsaken war. She smiled softly. Though she was always wary of compliments from strangers, she couldn't help but feel happy hearing one after so much time spent in isolation. So, I have told you my story. Now tell me yours. She shrugged. There is little to tell. I enjoy the quiet beauty of the woods. Forgive me saying so, but it seems as though a beautiful woman such as yourself would have no trouble finding a husband. I had a husband. For a short time, she said, neglecting to mention just how short the time had been. Losing him was a painful ordeal that I would prefer not to experience again. She left her explanation vague, knowing he would assume she had just had a difficult mourning period, when in truth she had never grieved for John. The painful ordeal to which she referred was an entirely different form of grief. I see, he stated, though he clearly couldn't have understood what she really meant. But you must be lonely out here. I have found that loneliness is a part of all of us, no matter how many people we have nearby. Did you ever feel lonely in the Navy? Of course. Even surrounded by the rest of your men? I take your point. The room fell silent and the witch struggled with what to say next. She had many strengths after several years in isolation, but conversation was not one of them. She couldn't help but notice the way the fire sparkled in his brown eyes. For a brief moment, she thought of Michael. That night, the witch dreamed of John and the way he touched her on her first and only night at the farmhouse. She closed her eyes as he climbed on top of her, but seconds later, opened them and found herself alone and naked in an open field. Suddenly, the air filled with the loud boom of a cannon, the heavy thud of bodies slamming into the ground, and the screams of terrified men. She wrapped her arms around herself, shivering in the cold night air, 
and searched the woods for the source of the noise, but could see nothing. She woke to find herself in her rocking chair. She had fallen asleep against her best efforts to stay awake and keep watch over the stranger in her bed. She reached for the knife at her belt, but quickly realized he was sound asleep again and posed no threat to her. The snow continued well into the morning. The witch had hoped that the sun would return and melt enough of the snow to make the journey safe for him, but it now seemed that the storm would continue throughout the day and possibly into the night again. There was little for either of them to do but wait. Do you like music? He asked her, breaking a long period of silence. Of course. As a child, I wanted to become a reverend, though not because I had any interest in providing spiritual guidance to anyone. I prefer to keep my faith to myself, to be blunt. Still, the reverends were allowed to sing and play the organ. It was the highlight of every week for me, singing in church. I do not have an organ for you here, I'm afraid, she teased. But I would like it if you sang your favorite hymn. He gave a sly smile. I thought you liked the quiet. Mostly, but it is so rare I have company, especially someone with any musical talent. Indulge me. Suddenly shy, he gathered his nerve and began to sing, softly at first before finally finding his confidence. Lo, how a rose blooming From tender stem hath sprung of Jesse's lineage coming, as men of old have sung. It came a flower bright amid the cold of winter, when half spent was the night. That's lovely. I do not believe I've heard it before. It's a popular tune where I come from. Where is that? He paused briefly, taking a bite of leftover bread. Near Providence. Have you ever been to that region? I've never been outside of this region. The summers are lovely there. Of course, I imagine the summers are lovely just about anywhere. There was another silence as the conversation came to a natural pause. The snow will continue for a while. The day is still young, she said, picking up another fur blanket from beside the fire and wrapping it around her shoulders. Tell me what happened up north. I know you were not seeking to be reunited with your men, or you would not be rushing so far south so quickly. His demeanor darkened. The lighthearted joy she had just begun to see in him once he sang his favorite hymn and spoke of his home had faded away. This would not be a polite conversation for a lady. I am no lady. Haven't you realized by now? I'm out here in the woods all alone. I am a witch. Why are you now? <laughs> that is what they say. People say a great many things that are not true. Especially towns such as this. The larger cities pay little attention to such superstitions as you find in the smaller villages. He did not believe her. It was a surprise and an enormous sense of relief. Isaac must have been the first man ever to cross her path without fear. Even those who paid her for a bed for the night en route to Portland seemed to eye her with suspicion, and of course anyone from Portland knew to stay away from her lest they meet the same fate John Mills had those years ago. Why do they call you a witch? 
She longed to tell him more of her story, especially once the realization came that she had never spoken of it to anyone. Her banishment had happened so quickly, she had not even had time to speak of it with Mary Grace. Long weeks in her prison cell during the trial had been swiftly replaced with long weeks at her cottage without a moment in between, and the rare travelers who spent the night with her were not an appropriate audience. And now here was Isaac, a man who was hardly in a position to judge her for her alleged indiscretions. As soon as the storm passed, he would be on his way home, and the two would never see each other again. Surely it must be safe to tell him, for he could never reveal her secrets to anyone without revealing his own. They believe I killed my husband. Did you? No. The witch declined to elaborate at that moment, instead waiting on Isaac to speak. He steeled himself in preparation for his tale. Banger has been ransacked and nearly burned to the ground by the Redcoats. I was optimistic at the start of this war, as we have defeated the British army before, and with fewer men than we have now at the ready. But this man, this Captain Barree, he's a complete lunatic. He spared the lives of all who lived in the town, thank heaven for that, but little else. His men killed livestock, destroyed furniture, and set much of the town to burn, including ships in the harbor. I had... He paused for a moment and reached for the small basin of water, helping himself to a drink. I had recently received word from Providence that my mother had fallen ill. I am now an only child, and as my brother Thomas succumbed to influenza when we were children, and my sister Emily did not survive infancy. When I saw the devastation in Bangor, I knew I was beyond my depth. I could not help these people, no matter how much I wished to. But my mother needed me. I felt compelled to go to her, as if driven by a force much larger than myself. The path into the woods was so clear. The horse was right there and available to me. I took it as a sign from God, thanked him for my survival, and left. The witch did not say anything, nor did she look away. I'm a deserter and traitor to my country. Should I be discovered here, I shall be tried and imprisoned, perhaps killed. I am putting you in danger by being here due to my own selfishness. I came upon your home cold, hungry, and desperate, and failing to act as a man of integrity. I put my needs ahead of yours. Now you've been nothing but kind to me, and I regret my actions deeply. Please, you must know how sorry I am to have forced the consequences of my decisions upon you. It may have been the first time she had ever heard a man express such regret, save for the ill-fated love letter from Michael. Well, fortunately for both of us, your horse is out back and not visible from the main road. It is unlikely anyone will see him. In fact, in this storm, it's unlikely anyone will see the road itself. For now, it seems we are safe. snow stopped shortly before nightfall, and the witch decided to go out to retrieve more firewood, though first had great difficulty opening the door against the packed icy snow that had nearly sealed it to the ground. Her boots were old and falling apart. 
Though she had been able to sew plenty of skirts and shawls for herself out of the small animal pelts, the procurement of leather and fastening it in the shape of boots was not a skill she possessed, and her feet were cold as they crunched through the snow around the cottage. An axe lay next to a pile of wood that had mostly managed to stay dry underneath an overhang out back. She set a small log in position to be chopped and was about to raise the axe when Isaac's voice stopped her. Allow me, he said behind her. He took the axe from her and swung at the log, splitting it into two. With Isaac helping, she was free to check a few of her traps, though she had to dig through the snow that had filled every hole in the ground with her bare hands. A rabbit and a squirrel lay frozen inside one of them, and for a moment she pitied the poor creatures. They typically weren't in there for long before she would find them and swiftly break their necks, allowing for a quick and nearly painless death. These two must have frozen to death under the snow, and may have also been on the brink of starvation. It didn't matter now. She brought both back to the cottage and set them near the fire to thaw before skinning them and adding them to the stew pot for supper. The fire was nearly dead. She glanced over her shoulder to be sure Isaac's attention was directed elsewhere, then gingerly cupped her hands over the remaining embers. She rocked her hands back and forth, and the embers slowly grew into flames. Isaac came through the door behind her, firewood in hand. Whatever would I have done in the storm, I had not been fortunate enough to find this place. I'd be asleep in the snow somewhere, freezing and starving. I suppose my actions could be construed as a dramatic escape or a fool's errand. She laughed and realized this was the most relaxed she had been in quite some time. Living in exile meant there was always a faint fear in her mind that someone unwelcome would come to her door, a traveler at best and at worst, an angry villager poised to accuse her of some other wrongdoing. Or, in the best possible scenario, she dreamed that one day Mary Grace would come back for her, children in hand, and tell her none of it mattered now. The town had forgotten all about John Mills and she would be free to join their family again. Perhaps, even, that Michael had finally come back from the sea. None of these things weighed on her mind now that Isaac was here. His presence made her feel safe in a way she could not explain, for he was still a relative stranger. Along with the heat from the fire, a new kind of warmth began to burn in her chest. I hope you will not find me too immodest, but I must remove these wet boots. Of course, this is your home after all. In fact, would you prefer I step out for a minute? You must not have changed your clothes since I have been here. That was true, and perhaps it would have been a good idea for him to do just that, but she didn't want him to leave. No, please stay. It's perfectly all right. I just need to warm my feet and allow them to dry. She removed the boots, and Isaac swiftly picked one up. This is what you've been wearing every day? I am not a very skilled cobbler, I'm afraid. Well... Neither am I, but certainly we can do better than this. He leaned over to reach for her sewing supplies in their basket by the fire, and in doing so, brought his face within inches of hers, nearly bumping her head with his. He laughed awkwardly. <laughs> Excuse me, I apologize for that. No need, she said with a smile. Their eyes met. In a moment of pure instinct, without thinking, she touched his hair and kissed him gently. Extraordinary. 
She had never been touched this way by a man other than John Mills, which was to say she had never been touched this way by a man she wanted to have. It was electrifying and romantic. Suddenly, she realized her greatest gift in being separated from the rest of the people of Portland. She may have been shunned from their lives, but that also meant she was free of their rules. No reverend could chastise her for something he knew nothing of, for no one was around to tell him. Isaac would leave in the morning, and their night spent together would be a secret she would keep forever. Furthermore, if they had already believed she was destined to eternal damnation, either for killing John Mills, which she hadn't, or for leaving him to engage in an early morning rendezvous with Michael, which she had, then the added sin of sexual relations outside marriage meant nothing more to God or to the devil. But here on earth, it meant everything to her. They slept peacefully together, tightly wound in each other's arms, when she felt Isaac jolt in his sleep and gasp for air. She sprang up and looked toward the door, expecting an intruder, but found the home empty. Isaac thrashed again in the bed, still struggling to bring himself to the present, and she realized this is what she had expected when he first arrived. Night terrors, similar to the ones Mother had had when she was a child. Those who had seen death in their mind's eye could not stop seeing it, especially in dreams. She tightly gripped his bare shoulder and shook him. Isaac, wake up. Wake up! His eyes finally opened. You are safe. You are here with me. It took him a moment to remember his surroundings and even remember her face. But once he did, he breathed a huge sigh of relief and laid his head back on her pillow. Thank the Lord, was all he managed to say. She draped a blanket over her naked body and moved to the fireplace, adding her iron kettle above the fire. Moments later, she brought him a warm mug of tea from her collection of dried herbs. Peppermint. It will help you find a more restful sleep. He smiled at her as he drank the tea. You may not be a witch, he said, gently touching her hair. But to me, you're magic. The witch had woken up angry every morning for more than five years, but not today. Today dawned with a glowing sensation of happiness, followed immediately by a sense of sorrow. Isaac would need to leave today. The storm had passed and it was best for him to continue on his journey before anyone discovered him here. She thought of this as she ate slightly toasted bread for breakfast and gazed out the window. Isaac rolled over in the bed and reached for her, then opened his eyes when he realized she wasn't there. You're up, was all he managed to say in his sleepy state as he spotted her silhouette against the window. The sun is as well. I suppose you'd better be going to make the most of the day on your travels. He wrapped a blanket around himself as he stood and crossed to the window beside her. I was thinking, if the sun is out all day, perhaps it will melt more of the snow and make the journey easier tomorrow. Meanwhile, I could fix your boots and the crack in the wall here. A lot of cold air is coming through. He gestured to a gap between the stone wall and the roof near the front door. And if you have the pelts to spare, perhaps you can make something for me to help keep warm. A small blanket or even just a hat. He wanted to stay. She felt her rib cage gripped with anxiety, but her excitement overpowered her fear. The chores he proposed could all be completed eventually, but now, in the cold early morning, they found their way back to bed. 
one day became two. Two days became three. Her boots were mended, the crack under the ceiling had been repaired with mud, and she had made for him several bags of herbal teas, gloves, a pair of socks, and bundles of carrots for the horse. Wrapped in a blanket by the fire that evening, she tried not to think about his inevitable departure. No matter how many reasons they found for him to stay, the fact remained that he had a family to care for, and his presence at her home would not be safe for either of them. It did not surprise her when he said, There's something I must tell you. Expecting him to pack up and finally be on his way in the morning, she readied herself to say goodbye. She was not prepared for what he said next. I have not been entirely truthful with you. My mother is not ill, and I am not from Providence. The truth is, I am from a small village on the Bay of Fundy. Do you know where that is? She shook her head. It's north of Bangor. Quite north, in fact. Beyond the border of Maine. She took a moment to piece together the depth of what he was saying. You fought for the British, then? She sent a glance to the navy coat resting on the back of her rocking chair. I took the coat from a wounded sailor on the battlefield. Why would you tell me otherwise? You are an American, are you not? I was afraid that anyone I encountered on my journey south would shoot me dead at first sight, which is why I stole the coat. Why journey south at all, if not for a family who needs you? For that matter, why run? if you and your men had won the battle. You must understand, I never wanted to be a seaman. Not for a moment in my entire life. I was just a boy of 14 when I was taken. I'd just begun work as a logger, the youngest on my crew. The older men went to the pub after a particularly long day and invited me to come along. I craved their approval desperately, and I'm afraid I overdid it with the whiskey that night. I fell asleep on a table, and when I woke, my crew had all gone home, leaving me there alone. The cottage seemed to grow darker around her, save for the glow of the fire on the side of Isaac's face. As he spoke, he could not bring himself to look at her eyes. I stumbled out of the tavern, dizzy and with a burning thirst in my throat. A nice man passed by and offered me water. I drank the contents of the canteen, and in seconds he offered more if I were to come back to his ship. I declined figuring it were best that I find my way home. When I felt the sharpest pain I'd ever experienced in my life, another man had struck me on the back of the head with a club, and without warning several men were beating me on the ground. I cannot even discern how many there were. I was carried to the ship and spent the night below deck with a handful of other young men in similar states as myself. The next morning, the ship had set sail, and from that moment on, I found myself a member of the Royal Navy. The witch was not entirely sure how to react. She felt she should be outraged at the thought of harboring a member of an enemy army in her home. Then again, the rules of American society did not necessarily apply in this situation. As I have told you, I was a sensitive boy who loved to play with my younger brother and sing in church on Sundays. My parents were gentle people who never so much as spoke an unkind word to anyone in our village. I was, and still am, a pacifist. I do not nor would I ever wish the terrors of war on my worst enemy. When Captain Barry commanded the sacking of Bangor and Hamden, I had had enough. I was in America, and I vowed to stay. 
After grabbing the horse and procuring an American military coat, I rode south with no destination to mind, just a desire to go as far as possible from the madness I had witnessed. Perhaps I will make it to New York, or even to Washington. I had intended to start over and make my way as best I can. I am not afraid of hard work or manual labor, and I must trust that this will be enough to survive in America. Her head grew heavy. She strongly empathized with him, since she herself had narrowly escaped an onslaught of brutality after her husband's passing, and knew the sensation of pure and unabashed fear of a violent death. And to have witnessed so much destruction against his will and indeed against his very nature must have been horrifying. She also felt afraid. The lingering anxiety that had plagued her over the years of the threat of an unwelcome visitor was heightened to the point of near panic now. He needed to run. Say something, he pleaded, and it occurred to her that for all the thoughts swimming in her mind, she had remained silent. Isaac, I... I want you to leave, she thought. I need you to go far away for your own safety. I want you to stay. She hadn't expected the words to come out of her mouth, but there they were, hanging thick in the air between them. She was overcome with a feeling stronger than any she had felt before, even for Michael. Looking at Isaac made her heart beat stronger and her blood run warmer. This was not a simple infatuation. This was love. Run away with me, he said with a searing optimism in his voice. There's no reason for you to stay. We can begin again, a new town, a fresh start for both of us. We can be married. Perhaps even raise a family. The witch had long since given up on the idea of marriage and motherhood, but now the thought excited her. A whole new life flashed before her eyes. She and Isaac living in a New York row home, with enough of a yard for her garden and within a manageable distance from growing businesses in need of workers with an entrepreneurial spirit. Or perhaps a small home farther south in Virginia, where the weather was warmer, the soil was softer, and green grassy meadows could be filled with the sound of a child's laughter. She looked at him and saw their future in his eyes, and simply said, Yes. The witch had a very small amount of money. Not enough to rent a home, but perhaps just enough for a night at an inn should the weather take a turn for the worse. Hopefully, the temperature would cooperate and remain warm enough for them to sleep outside near a fire. If that were the case, and if she were able to trap and cook rabbits along the way, they could make it as far as New York in as little as four days, and sell the horse to quickly raise enough money for food and shelter while Isaac began to look for work. The very idea of it thrilled her. A man from New York had stayed at the cottage two years prior, and compared to the other tenants she had put up for a night at a time, this one was particularly talkative, and, perhaps, particularly homesick. He spoke of how quickly the city was changing, with new roads stretching on for miles, bustling streets, expansive rivers, and new opportunities growing by the day. 
It was a settlement that longed to be as big as London, and in his opinion, would be within the next several years. Her childhood dreams of discovering an exciting new land flooded back into her mind. Though the crowded city streets overwhelmed her in a sense, the thought also, paradoxically, made her feel safe. She would need not worry about exposure in a town where one could so easily be lost in the daily hustle and bustle. In the woods of Maine, they were outsiders, forever branded with a target on their backs. In the city of New York, they would simply be a married couple, going about their lives and minding their own business. After five years alone, the thought suited her just fine. Besides, they were prepared to start over now, and if they found the city did not suit them after all, they could do it again. She woke the second the sun's first ray crept onto the windowsill. The fire had gone out during the night and the stone cottage was cold, so cold she could see a faint trace of her breath in the air. But it wasn't just the frigid autumn morning that made the room cold. She had a sinking feeling in her gut. Something was wrong. She quickly rolled over and a flash of fear overcame her. Was she afraid for Isaac? Was he all right? She suddenly thought of John Mills's body lying still in the back of the cart on that terrible day. Isaac, wake up, she said with more haste and concern in her voice than she had intended. He stirred and opened his eyes. She exhaled a sigh of relief. What is the matter? Come, we must be going. We may be able to make it as far as Massachusetts today if we leave right away. It took them seconds to get ready, dressing in furs and carrying as much food as they could in small satchels. For a moment, she considered saying a prayer, or at least taking a silent moment alone to say goodbye to the stone cottage that had housed and protected her through these difficult years. But something in the back of her mind told her there was no time. They needed to go. Bundled in fur and about to step into the sunlight, she expected the chill in the back of her spine to subside. Instead, the moment they opened the door... The feeling deepened, seeping under her skin and into her blood. Men in red coats, armed, with their horses standing dutifully nearby, surrounded the cottage. Good morning, Mr. Perry, a man said. The words were simultaneously spoken with a dignified accent and a sinister hiss. Isaac froze beside her. Mr. Perry... I would think by now you should be aware of how one must properly address a superior. Has your time away from your post affected your memory? Or shall I interpret your silence as an act of disrespect? Isaac stood up as straight as a board. Aye, aye, sir. Good day, Captain. Good morning, miss. Are you aware you have been harboring a fugitive of the British Royal Navy? She wanted to respond, but felt as though her throat had frozen. No, sir, as you may observe. Isaac interjected, gesturing to his blue coat. She had not the faintest idea of my true identity. The captain made a tisk sound as he shook his head. It is a sin to lie, seaman, and to such a lovely young lady, too. Although, perhaps she has kept a secret or two from you as well. The fine townspeople of Portland have many opinions as to her integrity. Her heart dropped from her chest so heavily she closed her eyes and nearly winced in pain. They had done this. How they knew, she could not decipher for sure, but she recalled the frequent feelings of unease that came over her from time to time, 
all alone in the cottage, half expecting an unwelcome guest from town. Perhaps someone had been there all along, surveying her and waiting to catch her in an act of indiscretion. It would not have been difficult to discern Isaac's identity, as Bangor was not terribly far away, and the news of the battle surely would have reached Portland shortly afterwards. When men in red coats came looking for a missing seaman, the townspeople would have had no qualms about turning him in, especially if it implicated the infamous, murderous witch in the process. The captain looked around and took a deep, satisfying breath. I must say, it certainly is lovely out here in the country, is it not? The longer I stand here, the lighter I feel my mood becoming. Because I am of a happier disposition this morning, I will offer you a choice, Mr. Perry. You may return with us to the ship and face court-martial for desertion, in which case you will be hung once you are surely found to be guilty, or... He grabbed a pistol from his belt and pointed it directly at Isaac. We can hold an informal trial here, and you may face a much easier execution. The witch grabbed tightly onto Isaac's arm. Personally, I would prefer the ship, as I would love to set an example for the rest of the men, lest they get any ideas put into their heads by your act of extreme cowardice. On the other hand, we will have to feed you on the journey back, barely enough to keep you alive, of course, and trials are so terribly boring, and I do believe that bringing your head with us to the ship would still be quite an effective deterrent. No, she muttered involuntarily. It was the only word that could be forced from her throat. No, this could not be happening to him, the kindest man she had ever known. No, she could not have come this close to leaving her solitary life behind, only to see it ripped from her fingertips now. No, no, no. Please, sir, I have proved to be a terrible soldier and she has done nothing wrong. Allow us to be on our way. We do not have much to offer, but can pay you for your cooperation. Groveling is a pathetic look for a man, Mr. Perry, as is such a sad attempt at bribery. But if you will not decide your own fate, as any respectable man surely could... I shall discern from your remarks that you do not wish to leave this land. And so, you never will. He aimed his pistol at Isaac and fired. Isaac ducked, covering and protecting her as they both fell to the ground. The captain prepared to fire again when the witch locked eyes with him. On her hands and knees, she glared at him with pure hatred. She gripped the earth, raised one hand and balled it into a fist, and slammed it as hard as she could onto the ground. The captain lurched backwards, knocked off his feet as though he had been tackled. Every man around them drew his weapon, startled by the force that had come from nowhere. Isaac pushed her out of the way as hard as he could, and she landed with a thud in the middle of her garden, slush splashing all around her. She spun around to face the rest of his men, but it was too late. Shots echoed through the forest, and in a split second Isaac's body fell to the ground. The men calmly and quietly shouldered their muskets and moved back toward their horses. She looked at Isaac, limp and lifeless in the dirt. She knew before she touched him that he was gone. 
His was the unholy posture of death, limbs weak and stretched out beside him, his face already colorless and cold. And then it came. From deep within her, beneath her heart and way down in the depths of her soul, a scream emerged. It was a scream so loud, it shook the trees down to their roots. The shutters on the cottage slammed and splintered. The men in red coats dropped to their knees and covered their ears, crying out in pain, although none could be heard over the sound coming from the witch. The scream stretched on and on, for this was a breath she had been holding inside for years. Finally, when she stopped to breathe, she stood up and raised her foot, stomping on the ground with a force so powerful the men were knocked backward, some tumbling down the hill and into the road. She opened her eyes wide. To their horror, the men saw the hints of gray drain from her eyes and turn into the darkest shade of black they had ever seen. She thrust both of her hands out in front of her body and from meters away, hit the captain with a force of energy so hard, it cracked his skull. She moved on to the other men, one at a time, twisting their necks until they snapped like a chicken's, crushing their ribs as though they were having the life choked out of them by a giant snake, and hurling them backwards into the trunks of the heaviest trees. She fell to her knees and took in a deep breath as she surveyed the scene. Their bodies lay on the cold, hard ground, their faces frozen in twisted expressions of terror. She wept as she cradled Isaac's lifeless body in her hands. He looked so innocent, younger than his years even, as he lay still and motionless in his stolen blue coat, which now appeared to be too large for his frame. The forest was silent. She was alone again. Hours passed. Her tears had long since dried as she sat in the dirt. The faint smells of sage and rosemary from the garden provided a soft comfort. She found enough strength to stand and to slowly drag Isaac's body into the garden, placing him near the rose bushes. His body would likely remain frozen for most of the winter, but in the spring, he would slowly slip into the soft earth beneath the melting snow and what was left of him would be covered in roses. She walked up to the horse and fed him a carrot from her bag before mounting him and riding toward the town, away from the setting sun and into the dark, cold horizon of the village by the sea. Shopkeepers began to close their shutters for the evening. Wives walked to their homes with armfuls of bread and meat for supper. One by one, as if startled by a draft in an old house, they turned and saw her, pausing whatever tasks they had been rushing to accomplish. The witch took slow steps forward, breathing through her nose like a bull, and stomped her foot again, sending shockwaves through the ground as though an earthquake had struck. There were a few gasps as they all tried to maintain their balance. She stomped again, and again until panic began to set in among them. Finally, she locked her eyes on the church, the site where she had married John Mills and shared her secret, loving glances with Michael all those years before. In one jerking motion, she shoved her palms out in front of her. A ball of fire erupted through the roof. She could hear their cries all around her. Witch! Witch! Oh, God help us! She set her sights on the villagers running for their lives. 
They began to lose control of their own legs, running at a pace so powerful their bones began to crack and they fell hard into the ground, smashing their heads upon impact. Support beams in several buildings suddenly snapped, causing roofs to collapse. A man ran toward her, holding a wooden cross in front of him. In the name of the Lord, I cast you back to hell from whence you have come. Be gone, devil! He shouted at her, before the cross was shoved back toward him so forcefully it impaled his throat. And here it came again, the scream. This time it was a scream not of anguish, but of pure and unadulterated rage. She screamed so hard and so loud her feet began to levitate off the ground. The winds whipped through the street, dust, leaves, and rocks swirling in the air around her. The sea began to roar, and waves came crashing down on the docks, washing away the dock workers unfortunate enough to have been out preparing for the next day's excursions. The sun had set behind the ridge, but her body felt hot, as though a fire burned inside her and raged through her veins, pulsing out of her eyes and her fingertips. The fire at the church had spread to structures nearby. Those lucky enough to still be alive tried desperately to crawl away from the flames and protect their fragile bodies from the debris flying through the air. The screaming stopped. The witch's feet returned to the earth. Slight hints of gray returned to her eyes, and in her last moments of appreciation for the chaos before her, a small voice spoke up behind her. Anna, the familiar voice said. Tears filled up in her eyes as she knew whom she would face as she slowly looked behind her. Mary Grace was with child, but would not be for much longer. She was overcome with emotions and wanted more than anything to thank her long-lost adopted sister for the pain relief she had provided during that horrible lost pregnancy, to tell her of her husband and child back home, and that her second was due to arrive in weeks. She longed to tell her she was sorry for never braving the journey to visit, and for standing by helplessly as the town council had sentenced her to a life she never deserved for a crime she had not committed. But in that terrifying moment, all she could manage was a simple plea. Please, Anna. Please stop. Mary Grace Roth enjoyed being a mother. Her daughter, Elizabeth, was now old enough to hold a spoon and play alone in the yard, but young enough to want her mother to hold her and tell her stories at bedtime. Her son, Matthew, was learning to crawl. Alexander had proved himself to be a suitable husband, who worked hard and cared deeply about seeing his wife happy and his children fed and clothed. Their life together had been simple but Mary Grace never felt anything but content in their home. Anna was never far from her mind, though in truth, such had been the case long before the incident. It had been true since the day her father announced his arrangement with John Mills. She wondered what would have happened had she not given her the letter from Michael, or better yet, if she had persuaded her father to consider Michael as a suitor before John Mills found himself in need of a young bride. Whatever may have been, there was nothing to do now but pray for Anna's safety 
and try to rebuild the town of Portland with a dim and perhaps vain hope that the townspeople would have learned a valuable lesson. Some said they saw her throw herself into the sea in despair. Others speculated that she had retreated back to the woods and had undoubtedly frozen to death as winter set in. Those in town most prone to be convinced of superstitions said she still roamed the streets and swore they had heard her screams in the winds at night. Mary Grace knew all of this to be foolishness and nothing more. Though it pained her to witness the story of her best friend becoming a cautionary folktale, one that would soon be used to frighten children into coming home before dark and behaving themselves in church, the real story of what had happened to the witch was one Mary Grace would keep to herself, declining to share it with those who were unwilling to hear it. She longed to believe her friend had settled in a new town, married, and spent her days peacefully tending to her garden. Or perhaps she had found a job as a seamstress or a governess for a well-to-do family with a brood of spoiled children. Or had continued to help other expectant mothers by becoming a midwife. Wherever she was, Mary Grace had a subtle feeling that her friend would be all right. The village would forever refer to her as the witch, but the outside world could simply know her as Anna. Thank you for joining me for today's episode of The Witch and Other Tales of the American Gothic. Special thanks to our amazing voice actors, Shannon Spangler, Benedict Mazurik, Ian M. Walker, Daryl Lathan, Monique Carmona, Krista Enns, and Hannah Park for lending their talent to these characters. Thanks to our friends Brian Taylor, Joe Carrillo, and Dara Stone for their support. And of course to my favorite composer-slash-audio-engineer-slash-human, Robinson Hobbs. For more stories from The Witch and other tales of the American Gothic, subscribe to our podcast or check out the book at jessicahobbswrites.com slash American Gothic. Join us next time as we head to 1830s New Orleans for a tale of jealousy, magic, and the powerful forces that lurk beneath the surface of America's most bewitching city in The Debutante. See you there. <laughs>